Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 66. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is David Miller. He's an executive director at Quilter Cheviot Investment Management and is the author of the prize-winning Diary of a Fund Manager, which now has a global circulation of over 15,000. In a city career spanning four decades, he's worked as a stockbroker and then a fund manager. He makes regular appearances on TV and radio. He's a committed empiricist and suspicious of economists with theories. Aren't we all? Dave Miller, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Could you tell us a bit about how you got into investing? Yeah, well, how I got into it, as ever, was a complete accident. So I was doing natural sciences at Cambridge, specialising in organic chemistry. And I decided in my last year that I didn't really want to be a scientist. So I ambled into the careers library and they said, well, you could go and see some of these stockbroker types uh, and see whether they'll give you a job. So I started reading the FT, went to have a few interviews and got a job. And that was in 1980. uh, And I've been doing it ever since. Fantastic. And tell us a bit about your, your blog and how that came about. This is going to be the theme today, another accident. So I was in a marketing meeting, new marketing director, new website. Okay, guys, there's space on the website. Anybody who wants to write something, they're very welcome. This is to a room of 25 people. So I sat down on Sunday morning. In fact, before that, I went back to my desk and thought, I can do this. The whole world comes to my desk every week as an investment manager, so I can do this. So Sunday morning during my daughter's harp lesson, in, in uh, near Millwall Football Club, uh, I sat down with a blank piece of paper and a fountain pen and wrote the first one. That was five years ago. I've done 248 now and published a book. Uh, it goes, it's now become part of my investment life. Brilliant. You don't write all of them with a fountain pen, do you? I certainly do. You do? How amazing. I think it's the, I think it's the way my, my mind works. I find the words flow more easily uh, and it's more conversational than typing. I think Tarantino writes his scripts on a, an old typewriter in the same way. I think, I suppose, when, the way you start is obviously the way you want to continue, I guess. I, I think that's right. I think it's just what's natural. And, and that will be, he probably grew up using a typewriter. People these days grew up using keyboards for everything. And I grew up using a pen. Yeah. Your style of analysis, you, you were mentioning just before we started that you're a, a bit of a chameleon in terms of how you do your analysis. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about your approach. Okay, so what I do is I manage money for people. So I have responsibility for their savings, um, you know, which is a very serious matter. It's not a game in any way. Um, and so I think that, the, the, and they will tend to appoint me to manage their assets. They won't have five fund managers with different styles. So it's beholden on me to try and make an assessment of what is going on uh, and then to flex well, how I approach investment to meet the conditions that are we're all facing. And I think that means that I have to change. I can't go out there and say, I'm a deep value investor, appoint me, my time in the sun will come along sometime. It, it's a matter of being as right as I can be throughout the cycle on behalf of these people. Do you find that when you're talking to investors, investors tend to want to pigeonhole people in terms of their investment strategy? Do you find that that's a problem? Because I'm a direct investor, uh, because the consultants don't have any impact on my business because I don't need to go and sell a product to other professionals. 
Um, that doesn't really come into it as an issue. I think what people are looking for is a uh, is an is an insight into the way the world is working, uh, so far as investment is concerned, linking it to what they know because everybody knows what's going on around them and meeting their their objectives. I think if you bring all of that together, the idea that 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 you, you there's one true way through becomes you know nonsensical, and people appreciate the fact that it's a complicated world, uh, and one has to try and make judgments. You say you're a direct investor. Does that mean you don't invest in funds? Uh, I use funds uh, uh, in part within my portfolios, um, just as I might occasionally be passive in certain yeah. parts of it. But all of these are active decisions. So when I'm talking to a fund manager who has a fund uh, that I might act, use, it's because it's the fu- it, that fund and that style suits my our view about how to invest at the moment that's the, the best vehicle to uh deliver a certain strategy or or tactic or outcome exactly so it's, it keeps us away from staff fund managers it keeps us away from people who believe their own publicity uh, and it keeps us away from those who simply by luck have got a great performance record uh, i appreciate we did we don't want to say poor poor fuel on troubled waters i mean what, what's your take on the the rolling debacle that is the sort of Neil Woodford fiasco. Mm. I mean, there's it, it, it's it's easy to take shots now. Mm. Uh, I think I've I've long felt and and really not involved, but long felt that that what he was presenting was an upward only investment strategy. It required money to come in, certainly not for money to go back out again. Mm. Um, and he was taking illiquidity risk uh, in areas which he hadn't previously had any involvement with. Uh, when he was previously, when he simply invested in UK market leaders, he got it right, uh, created that track record, exceptionally good track record. But once you stray into a liquidity, it's a different game. And when the music stops or, or when, when the trend reverses and people want their money back, you find yourself hemmed into a corner. And that's where that fund is. That's where he is now. Mm. I mean, I, I'm, I'm so more than willing to be charitable, but I think there's a fundamental problem if you're running a fund that's called equity income and you're buying lots of microcap stuff that doesn't pay any dividends, there's a, there's a you know, Houston, we have a problem. Uh, I totally agree with you. And uh, that happens, though, not just with, with him, but it happens throughout the what I've described as the retail funds mm. um, uh, universe. I, mean, I run what is called a cautious fund, um, and that um, has produced fine, perfectly respectable numbers over about 10 years. Uh, it is a public fund, but it's not heavily marketed. But what well, so I do what, what see... What is the component? Is that, is that equi- equity only? It's, or it's equity. Is it it's, no, it's equity and fixed income. Right. Um, and sterling only. Yeah. It's just the way it's set up to be low volatility in the for UK investors. But what I see when I look at its performance relative to the sector, I think that's my point, is that it, it has periods where it drifts down into the fourth quartile um, because those that pretend to be cautious are actually taking big risks with the liquidity, mm. whether it's in infrastructure, property, whatever, structured products. And then during the cycl- cyclical downturns, um, they the, the, the strategy that I'm running goes from fourth to first with effortless superiority mm. because I'm not taking the sort of risks they are, yet they're all classified as far as the marketing departments are concerned as cautious. And I don't think that's right. Mm. One of the things we talk about when we're marketing to clients, whether we're talking to individual investors or potentially to institutional ones, is that there's there's time in the market and then there's timing the market. 
And I think I'm broadly right. I may have to, I may err on by a few percentage points, but I think I'm broadly right in these stats that one of the most celebrated fund managers in history is Peter Lynch of the Fidelity McGowan Fund, which we're going back now probably 20 years. And I think his annualized returns over something like three decades were in the high 20%. So he was he was churning out not shy, not much shy of 30% annualized over a very long period, which is just like an incredible performance. But the average investor in the Fidelity McGowan Fund didn't get 30%, they got something like 7% because they were continually trying to time the market. So they were continually buying in at the top, <laughs> selling out of the bottom, lather, rinse, repeat. And so one of the one of the the more frustrating aspects of working in the what you call the retail fund environment is that there's if you like the track record of the long-term track record of the manager but that is continually being if you almost abused by the the fact that the the underlying investors are continually coming in and out because they just love trading and that's unfortunately massively detrimental to their interests mm-hmm. i one of the advantages i have is that i don't have a huge retail base to to, to to pay attention to, I have direct clients who I know and they can, they know me. So there's much more of a relationship involved. Relationship, and also that means that when markets are having a crisis of confidence, I don't suddenly have a flood of redemptions. Yeah. That's critical. I think that's a real problem for long-term investment. If you're selling at the bottom because you're having to meet liquidity mm. demands, that's that does. Well, it's potentially an existential threat to the fund. Uh, and in some cases, it, it has been. Yeah. I think your point about time in the market is correct. I mean, all that I've seen since I've been doing this is that that, that, that element of patience is really important, but that's not the same as lethargy. Mm. So what happens is that the world is changing. It's changed hugely um, over over the years. Uh, and if you simply sit there saying, that's the same as buy and hold, then you're, you're going to be left with all the wrong things. Mm. So I think that the world is is complicated. I think beneath the surface of the, the get in the market and stay there concept, there's got to be active management and selection, trying to find the winners, definitely getting rid of the losers, looking for value, looking for growth, mm. all at the right times in the cycle. Because I think that all adds up to a, a compound return. And I think your point is right, the compounding return is what's really important. And particularly now, we look as if we're look, facing up to, to years more of low interest rates mm. or zero interest rates. Mm. It's interesting that you use the word chameleon to describe the, the approach. I read quite recently, I forget who, who to credit for this, but it was a rather nice observation that, that, that value investors invest as if nothing's ever going to change and growth investors invest as if everything's going to change, which is quite a nice way of putting it. I, I think that's great. And also the, the difference between equity investors and bond investors. Uh, equity investors know they're not necessarily going to get their money back. Yeah. Bond investors assume they will, but sometimes they, they don't. Well, that takes us into a different realm because I, I started my career in the fixed income market. So I was a bond salesman for 10 years. And the advantage of that for me, and I'd say for anyone that starts out in fixed income, is that the fixed income markets, love them or hate them, are rational. They're kind of, yeah, they're a kind of grown up market to the extent that it, well, in my case, they give you a grounding in macro stuff that otherwise I, I wouldn't have had any exposure to because I didn't read economics, I read English. And so if you, if you, if you move in, the, if you sort of swim in the oceans of the bond market, you get some understanding, hopefully, of things like interest rates, inflation, currencies, you know, GDP growth, all that kind of stuff. Whereas my, I mean, I, I have a bias here, but my impression 
let's say over the same period of working with people who are working in the stock market, is these just guys telling each other stories all day long, at least on the sales side. So I've I've always had a say a grudging acknowledgement of, of what really goes on in the stock market because I think there's there's a lot more narrative going on there. Mm. Well, the narrative, the stories, um, I think reflect reality. So when people ask me whether I'm a top down or a bottom up mm. investor, I say a bit of both, but mm. starting at the bottom, looking at companies, talking to companies, talking to people who try and do things, sell things, makes a huge is is very very useful in terms of trying to form, formulate an overall view about what the economy is doing. I think what has changed for me as somebody who started very much more on the equity side, as but has become a multi asset class investor, is that the last ten years have taught me about the cost of money mm. and the importance of the cost of money. And to be honest, these days when you talk to bondies and, and and equity people, they talk the same language because we've all worked out that if interest rates are very low. Uh, it's about other things in terms of earning a return. Um, and if you think you know what the cost of money is going to be or if it's coming down, that has an influence right across every sector. I think you said just a few minutes ago, you, unless I'm wrong, please correct me if I'm wrong, that you, you felt that probably interest rates were going to stay lower for longer. Is there anything that could possibly change that narrative? So interest rates to stay low for a long time, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think because that's like the, the, the defining aspect of our investment world at the moment. Yeah, I mean, is where the, do you invest when you know interest rates are up? You know, if they're not nothing, they're actually less than nothing in some cases, which seems to be the height of absurdity. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, when I started work, uh, minimum lending rates in the UK was seventeen percent. Cute gales of life. Seventeen percent. What's that, Granddad? <laughs> Can you imagine what would happen to to everybody's mortgages if it, they'd evaporate? Everyone would evaporate, which yeah. means that interest rates can't be pushed up in that way, given the current structure and the level of indebtedness right now. Now, what will change and what has changed in just in the last year has been the invention of a theory or, or a label that, that, that makes endless QE infinity um, respectable, and that's modern monetary theory, which essentially means that you keep printing, you keep, you keep printing money, you keep interest rates low, and there are no victims to this. No, nothing wrong has happened in 10 years. So why should we stop doing it now? So let's just carry on. And that's been the change of, of attitude that, we're, that QE is not a temporary matter. It's becoming but baits into the system, which does suggest to me that, that until whilst we can, and when I say we, governments, central banks feel that they can pursue those policies, they will. Because if they went the other way, um, it could cause... Um, uh, an economic slowdown, it could lose politicians' votes. I think it's going to carry on. So I, I describe it as the Venezuela effect. I think it's going to carry on mm. until something goes wrong and, and Venezuela emerges from um, uh, what is apparently a very stable system that seems to be able to deliver moderate growth without inflation. For people who are looking for more risk, you, do you run a, a do you run two funds or just one cautious fund? Mostly what I do is 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 not run funds. Mostly I run direct portfolios for, for my clients. So they, yeah. they come to me and say, these are my financial objectives. This is what I've got. What do you recommend? I, see. I bring the it. two together. So so I'm I don't I'm not really a fund fund manager in that way. But that means that the, the this question about risk comes in is absolutely front and center of the discussion. Two aspects to it. One is personal attitude to risk, which varies from person to person, back their background, their, their experiences. Uh, and the second thing is, 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 is market risk. 
Um, so my my view about risk is that it's 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 use the same components in a lower risk and a higher risk portfolio. You simply alter the mix. Um, what I don't think is right is to have is to is to say uh, that you can find uh, exceptional investments and then take concentration risk, illiquidity risk to earn exceptional returns. I think thereby lies madness and bankruptcy. So what you're saying there is if, if you want outsized returns, you shouldn't put it in illiquid products? Is, if I'm, is, is that what you're saying? Or? Mostly what I do is, liqu- is liquid. Yes. So, and so if I want to take more risk, I'll take more risk in liquid markets. Right. I'll have more equities than bonds, for example, that sort of thing. Um, so I might, I might bring in more uh, currency risk you know, in relation to the risk, what, what I'm doing outside, away from the reporting currency that I'm trying trying to deliver a return in. That's how I look at it. Now, this is this is the end of the rainbow stuff, is that there are lots of people out there who say, if you give me the money and you're, you let me get on with it for 10 years, i.e. illiquidity, I will deliver an exceptional return to you. Now, maybe or maybe not. The question is that you don't know. It's a promise uh, based on an assumption, and that's essentially quite dangerous. I find... From my experience, relatively few people who have taken on illiquidity risk deliberately have actually earned superior returns. And when people come and say they can do that, I ask them to prove it. And usually it doesn't come down to anything more than a few assumptions. So do you ever get tempted by things like Bitcoin or maybe even gold is the way it's going up at the moment? Um, yes, well, not Bitcoin, but yes, gold. Um, much as I'd love to have said I bought Bitcoin at, 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 the, at the start, wouldn't that be nice? The answer is not not involved, I'm afraid. Um, gold is interesting. I don't regard that as an illiquid. I think it's just an alternative way of uh, an alternative store of, of, of value. And with what's been interesting about gold, and I've, I've again, you're going to keep laughing at me for being old, but when I started, gold was eight hundred dollars odd. It was at the top of a bubble. Um, and that's what everybody owned. And then it went down to 200 and it took 20 odd years, 25 years yeah. to bottom out. And Gordon was... Brown selling, yes. selling it. Well, Gordon, Gordon did us all a favour by calling the bottom. <laughs> well, by... announcing it well in advance. And well, absolutely. It wasn't that brilliant. Anyway, but but then since then, I mean, it does. It has always traded on sentiment because it has no, there's no way of valuing it. So it's purely an opinion. What's different today compared to the past is the high yielding asset. It is now. Thank you. You've <laughs> stolen my best line. Uh, it is now uh, a high yielding asset relative to um, about every government bond on the planet. That's thirteen trillion dollars worth of government bonds and Swiss Swiss government bonds out to thirty years. It now has a yield, extraordinary, yes. which means you can start to value it. Just as actually, although I haven't done it, you can make the case that you can value Bitcoin because there is a demand for Bitcoin within the financial system. ETFs or whatever. Yeah. Therefore, if you own one, you can rent it out to or lend it to somebody who needs the coins. That's that's how people value them these days. I don't think it has much rhyme or reason. Finger in the air view on Bitcoin. Do you think it will become mainstream or do you think it's going to zero, like some people say? I have absolutely no, no idea. <laughs> Um, but I would say that when it got down into the low thousands, I think the, the case was made to me that the upside, the, it was an asymmetric bet, right. but it was no more than the bet. Right. So with regards to gold, do you, you also look at silver 
as an investment? I, I, I'm sort of I'm notionally aware of the ratio between the two. I suppose silver has a different has a certain industrial use and cyclicality to it. Yeah. Um, but but the relative merits of that's a, a, a sort of a specialist activity, and occasionally one gets very cheap relative to the other. Yes. Um, but I mean, it, uh, but it, because of the industrial, the cyclical nature of silver and its uses in industry, there is an element of of, of it actually has that use, and therefore what is being produced is actually embedded in something that, and it doesn't come back to the market, whereas most gold just sits there in a vault somewhere and does. It's quite interesting you say that about the ratios between gold and silver, because we've been discussing that on the podcast, and very recently gold moved up, but silver hadn't followed, and then within a week or two, it's actually broken out. So it's had a, had a decent breakout. We were looking at 15 and a half as the breakout level, and it um, soared through that. Yeah. It's now having a bit of a consolidation, but it does. I think people are waking up to the idea that gold and silver compared to bonds looks like a very good buy, and yeah. especially compared to, to Bitcoin. It would make, make a lot of sense to at least have some in a balanced mm. portfolio. But I think you scratch the surface of a, of a view of, and a prejudice of mine, which is that I'm, I'm a great believer in human ingenuity and longer term economic growth, and that, that we are steadily using less and less resources. Um, we're finding ways to simplify uh, what, we, what we use to actually create what we need. Um, and I think that, that, that so if, if you push me hard, I would much rather be out on the edge of, of investing in, in companies that mo- do things, make things, sell things, provide services, than wanting to uh, bury my wealth at the bottom of the garden, which essentially is what gold is. And frankly, as an, to, an, to an extent, what property is. It is simply, or steel, or sulfuric acid, all the things that over the last 100 years people used as a measure of, of industrial power and wealth have become less and less relevant in terms of generating a, a dollar of profit. So I don't know if you saw there was a Bank of England um, documentary on BBC. I, well, I guess we'll get to media picks a bit later, but it was, it was quite interesting that they were showing how they were going through the process I think it was in 2017, um, but it could have been a bit, bit earlier than that. Um, and they were going through the process of explaining how they were deciding whether they wanted to raise or lower interest rates. And it, it was fascinating for a couple of reasons, possibly the wrong reasons. Um, one was that they showed how much gold they have in the vaults, but they didn't at any stage say it was our gold. You know, they just they were looking after a lot of gold. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, yeah, that's interesting. Why haven't we actually got any as, well, we've probably got some, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, I, I read between the lines, and perhaps there's something on the website that would tell us, but I read between the lines that it wasn't actually our gold. We're looking after it for other countries and other powers. We're doing that, and I think is so are the Americans. Um, you know, when I think it was the Germans asked for their gold back, uh, it took the Americans quite a long time to gather up the physical stuff to send it back. So there are some some rather arch conspiracy theories. I mean, with gold, gold has to be the most conspiratorial, conspiratorially associated market in the world, the, the most rumoured driven one. And there are some rather arch conspiracy theories that basically there's... Well, I think it's absolutely certain that the number of claims of paper gold on the physical are at the ratio. I think the, the, the Reserve Bank of India calculated it's at 99 to 1. 
So in other words, for every ounce of the physical out there, there's 99 or 100 bits of paper gold floating about in the system. So God help you when there's a run on it, if this, you're sure. Absolutely. And but that, that is potentially a, a, an upside push on the price if you actually did want, if a, enough people wanted physical delivery, that would have consequences. There's a guy called Paul Milecrease too. I don't know, he may still do it. He used to write something called the Thunder Road Report, which is for, for us gold bugs. And he said, and this is going back six or seven or eight years now, but he said the next leg up in gold will prove to be a religious experience for those people who find themselves short. Following on from that, but, but how people look at risk, um, and it, and and I think, and this is a gold-related story, but mm. but this is a, a, a conversation I had with a client based in Malta, um, and Malta, not at the moment, but in the past, had a a government whose only friend in the world was was Colonel Gaddafi. Mm. So there was always the, the the chance of revolution. So I said, "What do you do about security?" He said, "Well." He said, um, uh, he said, I have a bank account in Sicily. I said, I can't stand that. It's not far away. He said, that, but that, I only keep a bit of money there. He said, it's enough to get me to Geneva. <laughs> so I said, well, that's fine. That's where you got most of your money. He said, yeah, that's right. He said, but also I have a, I have a boat in the harbour. And I said, this is all making sense to me. So come the revolution, you walk down to the harbour, get in your boat, sail over to Sicily, and then you're on your way. He said, yeah, but there's one more thing. In the bottom of my boat in the harbour is where I keep my gold. <laughs> and I think that's what security is all about. If you really want to get conspiratorial, yeah. which I don't most of the time, uh, I'm paranoid about these things, if, uh, you don't need a lot in reserve in terms of, of, of something different to give you some chips to start with again. And I think that is what real diversification is, not the sort of the stuff we talk about in portfolio terms, about bonds versus equities, UK versus US versus Japan, alternatives like hedge funds or or property. It's it's actual something that is different and that you can get your hands on. And if it's stuck in the banking system, Tim, to your point, it's of no worth to you. Look what happened to the Americans in the 30s. They got a bit of paper back from Roosevelt. Who is the guy? Who is the is it Jim Slater? Jim, I met Jim Slater. Uh, I think it must have been 2008, so around the time of the Lehman crisis. And we were both on, we were both giving a presentation, some sort of a speech at some seminar. And uh, I, th I may even have asked him this on stage, but I think I probably asked him just before we went on. And I said, what are you doing with your own money at the moment? And he said, I have my money in index linked as certificated UK government bonds and I hold them in a fireproof safety deposit box. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And I think it was exactly the same seminar where I heard these lines, which may or may not have been from Jim Slater himself, where, where someone said, if you are the distressed seller of illiquid assets in a distressed market, it is worse than being trapped in a crowded cinema that's on fire. It's like being trapped in a crowded cinema that's on fire. And the only way you can get out is by persuading someone outside the cinema to swap places with you. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> And, uh, but before we get too depressed about all no, these no, things, no, no, this is no, this is this is this is us being uplifting, David. Is it really? I'm sorry, <laughs> but but I think before we get too far down the line, my my, I'll come back to what I said. Is that broadly speaking, I think there is a lot of there's a lot more optimism in commerce yeah. and business than than you read in the headlines. Well, or on, you entrepreneurs find in, or by definition West, have to be optimistic, don't they? I mean, if 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 the business of commerce were conducted by well, there's a Chinese and there's a Chinese saying, a man who doesn't smile shouldn't open a shop. 
<laughs> but you see, I think, but I, I want to, I'm going to keep going at you on this one because the thing is that I think that the, the, this is a time of change. I think technology is driving huge change. I think um, lots of other things are driving change, but let's not stick to technology for the moment, which means that, that, that it's a zero, in some ways, it's a zero sum game. There are winners out there, huge, huge winners that we can invest in, and they're sucking profits out of the huge losers. And, and this is change. And that means that business as usual isn't good enough. You don't have to be hugely optimistic about GDP growth or anything in particular. What you do know is that there are companies that are making use of, 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 of technology to enhance their business, to provide us, the consumers, the customers with a better service, better products, cheaper prices. And those that aren't getting it are dead in the water. Mm. And that, to my mind, is the argument against passive investment and the argument in favour of, of investment, despite all of the uncertainties in the world. What sectors do you find interesting? What sectors do you find overvalued and risky at the moment? Well, at the moment, we're just halfway through the, well, part of the way through the, the half, first half of the year results season. Um, and, and what's really interesting is that the winners continue to win. So Alphabet, Google, Amazon, 20% plus growth. So if they're on, on P multiples in the 20s, that is not expensive. Facebook, with all the problems, image problems, fines, 30-odd percent growth. These companies are just churning out the, 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 the profits, the revenue. Um, and they're not expensive because they're perceived to be uh, an under threat from the Justice Department or whatever, and pu pu public changing, pub the public changing its mind. So... A little bit of expense doesn't matter. That's where the winners are. Then you get slightly further down the line to the companies like Visa, Nestle, um, Coca-Cola, which are knocking out pretty respectable numbers despite, well, certainly in relation to zero interest rates. And again, they are worth the price. They're slightly expensive if you want to be picky about it, but it's, it's a price worth paying. And on the other side, those that are cyclical, the caterpillars of this world, that are suffering from trade wars and, and, and general falling off of industrial activity. They're looking a bit cheap, but they're getting cheaper. And that's before you get to the out and out losers that you just don't want to touch. So I think what we're finding is that it's across the sectors. There are companies that look a bit expensive. Not, this is not nosebleed territory 1999 stuff. They're a bit expensive, but at the moment it's a price worth paying. It's interesting. I was with a fund manager during the week, Robin Milway, who has a, a fund called Arbrook G10, and he invests in the US market. And part of his presentation is fascinating because it, it strongly points to the fact that digitization, the, the, the internet economy, interconnectedness, these trends are firstly are leading to winner-take-all um, aspects to the market leaders, the likes of the, the, the Googles of this world. A bit like the way the banks have sort of become the big four, big five, and too big to fail? I'm not, well, I'm not sure the banks would be a good example, unfortunately, now. Because, I mean, I'm a, lot, I'm a lot more bearish on I'm, I've never been bullish on banks, but I'm as bearish as I ever have been on, on the banks, but I'm, I'm not Robin. But um, firstly, that you've got these dynamics leading to kind of winner-take-all market outcomes, but also that those market outcomes aren't necessarily mean reverting, that because of just the nature of things, um, so it's, it, and this is something I think Naval, do you know Naval Ravikant? Have you heard of Naval Ravikant? He's, he's some, my latest man crush is on Naval because he's, he's, he does fa fabulous interviews. He's an angel investor in, in, you know, in Silicon Valley. And he, he's given a few very good interviews on podcasts recently. 
and he he makes the point that you know these things aren't necessarily mean reverting, but the you've got the, the the natural order now seems to be that in in lots and lots of industries, possibly including even banking, but certainly in lots of industries, you now just got one one almost completely dominant player, and then just a long tail of you know, of, of tiny little competitors. Mm-hmm. So there's like this winner take all thing is really becoming embedded in the the system, and so. And he was making the argument, he's not a pure tech investor, this guy, Robin Milway, but he's making the argument that these sort of market leaders, um, they're not they're not particularly expensive, as you were saying, that they're not trading at 99-type multiples, that they're, they're, they're 2019 multiples, but that it may be that they're just, they, they will ne- arguably never become really cheap, not cheap enough, say, for a, value, a classic value investor. But it's, it's, it's kind of lo- a bit like saying it's different this time. The thing about value investing is it kind of assumes that the markets mean revert. And for the last 10 years, there's been absolutely no evidence of that happening. Mm. Yeah, well, the, the, the last 10 years has been distorted by, by QE, cheap money. But then yeah. the question is, how much, more, how, how, how much longer is this process of QE going to last? That, it could that, be another 10 years. And that's it. And what, what the, these, these huge sector-dominating companies have done is that they've made full use of cheap money mm. to uh, build uh, their new world. Uh, and destroy the old worlds. And I mean, that- Amazon's a great example of that because Amazon started out as a, you know, as a player, as a as a pure book play, as a retailer. And certainly at the time in 1999 or 2000, if it had if it had stayed just at the level of flogging books, it would never have justified its valuation. But you know, it branched out into all these other fields, including Amazon Web Services, which is now probably one of its most profitable components. So they've been using, they've been benign reinvestors of of capital as being given to shareholders. They've just they've just Basically, become a gigantic VC firm. Mm. I think uh, where, where will it all end, and how how do you get past, or how do you get rid of this dominance? I mean, in the past, it's taken government action to destroy monopolies, so oil, telecoms in the states over the last hundred years. Um, and the question is, will the same happen to the technology companies, the U.S. technology companies, this time round? I think what's slightly different this time. Um, is that that might happen, but out elsewhere in the world, there are companies that are unencumbered and unhindered by by such things as the the niceties of what's fair, who are continuing to invest and invest in creating even more powerful systems. So if the Americans don't want to take the lead in technology, the Chinese will, will. Yeah. Um, and they're already over investing. And I think that that means that it's very it could be that that you can stop you could stop Amazon in its tracks. Uh, with an antitrust um, uh, attack, um, but whether that would actually achieve the desired result uh, is is a is a different matter. It doesn't mean it's like ten cent or whoever just replaces them just takes. Yeah. The, and we as consumers with access to the world through the internet, um, I'm afraid really don't care. Mm. We'll well, buy what's cheap and what's available. So a company like Facebook, though, which has far more risk of people deciding that they it's not cool anymore and not using it. Um, and also the regulatory issues and the privacy issues that seem to have uh, obviously come to the fore at the moment. Don't you think those are headwinds that will will impact it further? It sounds like you're quite optimistic about the sector. Mm. And that's a very interesting view because there are not many people who are. Well, let's look. I mean, Facebook has... has, um, uh, Firstly, it's delivering good numbers, as I said. Secondly... um, uh, along with 
Google it, it really controls advertising now. And, and therefore, it's the it's just needed. Now, you're quite right that, that the public may change the way it uses social media. Facebook may become old technology, uh, may be replaced by something else. Um, uh, but not yet. I think that uh, the point is that we can construct the story for it losing its market, losing market share, but it's so dominant that it could afford to lose a bit. And also because it's throwing off so much cash, it is in a position to spend money buying buying the innovators as they come come through. So I wouldn't be dismissive of it. I think it's it's much more at, uh, a, a, the much greater threat to it will be will be legislation, um, uh, and that is essentially a Western thing, uh, US, Europe, rather than the rest of the world. And here in the UK, there's been many people who, especially the press, no surprise there, that are trying to do down the UK economy, which seems to be much stronger than their bearish predictions. What What's the outlook in, in your view, the UK? Well, the UK has had a, a, an extraordinary three years since the referendum of, of Uncertainty. Um, going back three years, uh, the pound was a dollar fifty. That's now a dollar twenty-five or whatever. Close. Um, the UK equity market was at a, was a slight premium to the world market. Uh, Sixteen odd times. It's now twelve thirteen. So you can argue that 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 in fact sterling assets have been derated because of uncertainty. The other thing you get from the surveys is that, that global investors are underweight in the UK for re- obvious reasons. So it all lines up to a little bit of a bit less uncertainty or even a little bit of certainty about the future of the UK um, does bring in the buyers who are underweight and does mean that, that those that don't have pounds today can use their expensive up currency like the dollar to buy what they would see as very cheap assets in the UK. And on, on underneath that, of course, we've still got lots of very good companies uh, that have um, excellent products, trade globally, that, that would, would fit into any multinational company. So I think there's, there's a case to be made for not regarding the UK as uninvestable, but very much a matter of looking for you know, time to get you know, start to re reweight portfolios towards what is at the moment a slightly uncertain economy and what, market. What's your take on the political situation here? How, how much risk would you attach to a possible Corbyn government, for example? So uh, it's a movable feast, isn't it? The the, the, the I'll give you because, my... I mean, the latest poll numbers do not look particularly encouraging for Labour. Well, I think that's it. I mean, the, the lack of, a, of an, an electable opposition yeah. is a great advantage to the government. Um, of change of prime minister this week, uh, change of cabinet, mm. lots of promises being made. Uh, what will happen next? And it's impossible to say. Um, we This is a, a, a democratic uh, constitution, even if the constitution is unwritten. Um, we've found ways over the centuries to come through difficult periods where there seemed to be doubts about how the constitution would work. It is a parliamentary democracy. Uh, I can't imagine that the end game won't be um, either a deal gets done mm. with compromises on both sides. With the EU. With the EU, sorry. Uh, with the EU, uh, with compromises on both sides um, that would be acceptable to all. This is a big ask. Um and if not, then we'll have to have an election mm. and the voters will have their say. And it's not 
as you were saying, a done deal that there will be a change of government just because of the of the trouble that we're in at the moment. I mean, it's we're getting ahead of time to the extent of sort of media picks, but one of my media picks is going to be PMQs from the last from the last week. For anyone that saw Prime Minister's questions, was it Wednesday or Thursday? Um, with as you say, brand new cabinet, brand new prime minister. It's like it, it's a bit. It felt a bit like living in a parallel universe when you when you put put the TV on and watched and just saw the quality of the 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 caliber of the front bench under Boris versus what the front bench used to look like under Trees and May. Uh, poles apart. It was like the sun breaking out after a prolonged period of gloom. It was quite. I mean. I'm kind of waxing rhapsodic, but you had to kind of see it to believe it. And Boris just annihilated Labour and annihilated Corbyn. So I think I tweeted in the aftermath of that, that watching Labour in the new parliament is going to be like watching pro-celebrity seal cub clubbing. It's just uh, annihilated. It's just complete carnage. I mean, I'm needless to say not pro-Labour at the best of times, but this is like, this is like, please, you have to stop this. It's just, a, you know, it would be a mercy killing. Were you surprised that uh, Boris got it? Not the leadership. No, not at all. I, I always felt that Boris was a was was the absolute shoe in, uh, and the fact that it was on a basically a ratio of two to one kind of t tells you everything you need to know that it, he was you know the popular choice as far as conservative uh, you know the conservative membership were involved. But did you happen to see PMQs during the week? Funnily enough, I, I was I I didn't, but I listened to it on on. So, I, so I'd, I'd be interested to know how it sounded rather than what well, it looked like. What I think, it didn't sound quite as positive. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think that as, as everything in life, sometimes... Because Boris is very spontaneous as a speaker. He's not, are you, I think even he would acknowledge he's not fluent. He's much more energetic. When you listened just to the words, <laughs> it sounded a little bit less coherent, yeah, I think yeah. is what I would say. No, I think you need to see it around the full package. But I, what I'm picking up on that, I mean, that's that's the that's the British side of the equation. Yeah. Um, and that's being, you know, will preoccupy the headlines now for till the 31st of October, um, and I'm sure beyond. What I'm actually interested in, and, and I, I try to look at things through an, uh, an investment lens, um, but also I'm personally interested, is, is what's going on in, in Dublin. Mm. So I think it's no surprise that the T-shop Leo is is talking an awful lot in public. Mm. I think what will be really interesting, and I'm trying to, to test this with my Irish contacts, is what will happen when, um, let's just say we, we have a no-deal exit, um, when the Irish economy has is in trouble, people lose their jobs. Um, you can blame the Brits as much as you like, but at the end of the day, voters will vote uh, for change, if they perceive that that they've been landed in 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 it, uh, losing their jobs or whatever, and and I think that the pressure is on in Ireland to try and find a compromise mm. that 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 allows um, a deal to be done, because I think the alternative for Ireland is going to be is going to be very painful. A lot of focus is on the UK, of course, but it has to be said that there is risk. There are risks that other countries would want to leave as well. Uh, they, I think they probably learned their lesson from us. Actually, well, they don't. To, yeah, they don't seem to. I mean, I don't. Know, the the everyone seems to want to change it from within rather than leave at the moment. But I mean, the, the, what's fascinating is that this game hasn't even played out properly yet because it's like anything can happen in the next three months. Yeah. Where I think the EU is in trouble is 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 back to the um, back to the economy and back mm. to, to 
to the to the real world as opposed to the political world um, is that the German economy, which is the engine for Europe, is faltering. Is, is faltering very significantly, um, and it's faltering not for Brexit reasons, but because of it. You know, German industry is making the wrong things at the wrong price, and the markets have gone away, so they're not selling enough cars to the Chinese, for example, and the whole thing is 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 stalling. No pun intended, and this is having a knock-on effect at a time when the German government is also in a, in a state of change and Angela Merkel's reign is coming to an end. And she's looking very shaky. Uh, again, <laughs> no pun intended. Very, so I think that... That was in poor taste. Poor taste, sorry. That but, has to stay in the final edit. But what, what I think is, is going to be really interesting is if the German economy goes into recession mm. and the paymaster is not happy, mm. um, will it be prepared to cross-subsidise to keep the peace? Which is really interesting because I was at the Australian... High Commission in the Strand on Friday. Um, it was as a result of a there was a, a, a group of students from the University of Western Australia. Because I write for a company called Southbank Research, Southbank Research hosted them on the Monday, and then we went down on the Friday to, to the Australian uh, High Commission, and we met with the Deputy High Commissioner and a trade um, delegate, tra- trade diplomat. And the question I asked, you know, with my usual sort of uh, relaxed demeanor was did he think it was that there was a future for the EU or it would break apart and his response was interesting because he what effectively what he what he implied was that the euro zone will break apart for if there is going to be a fracture the eurozone will be the bit that breaks first um as opposed say to the EU which is you know, clearly a political union in which you no know, you get you get the sense that they're it, it will persist because there's just too much invested in it in every sense, not for that to happen. But I thought the remark about the currency was interesting because, uh, put it this way, I, I, given a choice, I wouldn't own euros um, because at some point I think it is going to break apart and I just don't know what the time is going to be like, but it's an unsustainable system. I'm just so glad that I'm a global investor and that I can take my money to the, the common sense US economy. <laughs> <laughs> and get away from. So, you, so you, you don't have to worry about this stuff. Well, I, I do. Of course, I worry about it. But, but you don't have to invest in it. But I, but, but I have the choice of not yeah, investing in it. Yeah. I do live in the UK, therefore I worry about it. But, but, but that was a slightly tongue-in-cheek comment because Trump is being Trump, and um, what he does defies rational analysis. And yet, um, uh, the US economy is is going along quite nicely. Interest rates are coming down. You get a positive. Uh, positive interest rates if you invest in their government bonds or treasury bills. There's a lot going right for it, um, despite some of the sort of more lurid three o'clock in the morning tweets. Isn't it just a case of it doesn't really matter what he does or says, as long as interest rates are low, businesses have got a, a way to what? to buy their own stock back and, and invest. And that's and consumers have got cheap credit. That's yeah. end of story. He may make mistakes that... that we all should worry about. So he could continue the attack on the Fed, and it could the the money bit might go wrong. Um, but whether he's got the nerve to do that, I think, is another matter. Well, he he was criticising the Fed for not lowering interest rates, and there was that standoff, and then they lowered interest the Fed, rates. The so Fed capitulated. That told me a lot because I thought the Fed can either make a stand here and just just to be bloody minded and say, look. Mm. You know, we do what we want, and because you're telling us to put interest rates down, we're not going to do it. Or they could say, actually, I've had a look at the economy, we should really lower interest rates. 
and and they'll do what they think is I, right. I, I, see, I guess they're just doing what they think is I, right. I think I think that that um, they over tightened last year. The, the the economics don't justify what they did. Uh, they've now changed their mind, and whether they were bullied into it or whether they they're just simply making a rational decision. I think I still err on the side of them, of them making rational decisions as opposed to to, to giving in to the uh, presidential demands. There's a real sense of inflation in this country going up, and yet interest rates don't feel like they're going to go up. And that, that, that seems like a pressure that's pushing out to, say, house prices, um, you know, our consumer goods, but also another thing that's pushing gold and silver prices higher. Mm. How, how, do you, how do you view that? Uh, when, so when you say you think inflation is pushing higher, I could turn it around on you and say, what? I mean, we know, we know about things like asset prices are, are, yeah. have been inflated far beyond the retail price index. But are you saying that that the that, that the weekly shop is getting significantly more expensive? We're just saying um, yes. Like I go out for a pub meal somewhere; it's very expensive. Booze is expensive. Not that I drink, but you, you just get this sense that prices for everything are going up. Yeah, the the, the basket that's used by um, the financial system the Bank of England or the Fed or whatever, those baskets are are stacked full of of odd things. Yeah. And they 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 you know, I have seen work done sort of saying that if the, if the basket was the same now as it was 20 years ago, inflation would be six percent. Well, they changed the basket, don't they? They changed the basket. Exactly. So it's a hard one. I think I think I have no good answer for you other than the fact that there is there are pockets of inflation out there, there are pockets of deflation out there. And what the RPI or the CPI tell us is that you you add those together and you get an average, which um, uh, is an average and no more than that. So so I think it is what you spend your money on. Yeah. Uh, and that is, again, age-related. It is all sorts of things. Of course, it's anecdotal. Uh, that, that's, well, that's what I look for, anecdotal. I don't necessarily look at the numbers. I look at how, how it feels, whether it feels like prices are going up or, or, or not. And as you say, it does relate to your age and what you're purchasing um, at whatever stage in your life. Um, but you say there's pockets of deflation. Where, where are you seeing deflation? Because there, there is this big pull between inflation and deflation. One of these genies is going to come out of the bottle at some point. And personally, I think it's going to be deflation. But we haven't. I'm, I'm giving inflation the benefit of the doubt at the moment. Yeah, you talk about that's from an investment point of view. I think there is this 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 standoff between general disinflationary pressures around the world, which you could characterize as deflation, but let's call them disinflationary pressures. Right. And that's driven by innovation, technology, globalization. And until recently China. And until recently China, which is no longer the case. I think you're right on that. Um so that's the that's that 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 those are the dis, disinflationary forces that are out there. Um, and they may well um, overwhelm, you know, temporary inflation in certain areas. So I think it's all around. It's not the price um, uh, when you when you look at the price on the shelf. You know that that isn't the right price. We all know that now uh, okay. because we can go onto the internet. And we can find it cheaper somewhere. And I think that's how lower prices get embedded in the system. I think that's a more powerful effect than companies saying. Our costs have gone up, so I'm going to put my my tin price up by five percent. 
Well, funnily enough, they stopped selling those tins and they had to put the price back down again. There was one of the economists that we had on the show, it may have been John Hearn, and apologies to the economists who did say it if it wasn't him, who said that the only form of inflation you ever get is demand pull. Cost push does not exist as as a form of inflation, which I thought was a very interesting comment. I've never heard that before. What, what do you think of that? Let me think about it. I think um, when we had a closed economy in the 70s um, with exchange controls, um, it was easier to put the price up and that the consumer then had to pay for the higher price. Very good point. Uh, it was easier for ICI, for example, to give in to wage demands and then go to the government of the time and say, could we have a little bit more money, please? There was that sort of so a circle of, of, of incompetence, really, that drove inflation to 25%. But it was a lot more monopolistic, wasn't it, in, in each of those? There's much more competition now. These days, it's, uh, all of the above doesn't work anymore, yeah. in that we, we, we can go outside the UK. It's not a closed system. And, and therefore, I think your point about um, it's all to do with um, demand, not, uh, not cost push, uh, would drive inflation. And I guess we all... Um, Pays your money, takes your choice. And if the price of something that you really want's just just gone up, then if you still want to buy it, that's your your decision. I think if, if Mark Clooney were joining us as someone I very much respect um, at the central bank here, the Bank of England, I think he'd say that the inflation, ex-inflation measure, has been remarkably st- static and stable over the last few years. In other words, if you take inflation out of inflation, there is no inflation. <laughs> well, I'll have to have a think about that one. <laughs> But in the US, like CP, CPI x CPI or yeah. RPI x RPI. Yeah. So it's but, a flat line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in the, in the but uh, the, the, what the thing that springs to mind is that in the US, the only things that are driving inflation at the moment are healthcare and rent. Yeah. Everything else is um, is going down pretty well. These are the only factors driving the US inflation number, both of which are have they're happening for very specific reasons. You seem to have a handle on the, the you know, the micro elements that are moving inflation. What, what would you say is the moving in the UK, looking at uh, the different sectors? I think it's global. These are these are global issues. In in that the UK doesn't have the healthcare bit, but it does yeah. have the rental bit, um, and not much else is on a rising trend at the moment. My uh, my sky. My Sky subscription's going up. My Netflix subscription's going up. My Virgin Media subscription's going up. Um, I'm not seeing a lack of inflation at the uh, services area. Uh, I mean, maybe media's a narrow sector. But... Fair, fair point. I think that if you look at how people spend their time, and this comes back to demand push, um, people are spending their time doing what you've just described mm. and they're not spending their time doing other things. So mm. there's there's other areas where, where I mean, there's God no God price what, power. If I was going to the cinema, God knows what the price of a cinema ticket would be now, but I haven't been in about three years. It's about £15 yeah. or so. Yeah. Well, I went, well, I went yesterday and it was £17.50. My God. At the Curzon in Soho. God. How about that? That's... Yeah, that, can we ask what you went to see? Because that sounds a bit, frankly, like a dirty map, John. Because <laughs> in the Soho, I went to see. It's a great cinema. I'm going to, I'm, I think you're you're you, you're right to pick it up. I, I led with my chin just so you would. 
Um, but I went to see Marianne and Leonard, oh, which has oh, just come. Okay. Nick Broomfield's new documentary about Marianne, Leonard, who's Leonard the, Cohen, the, it? yeah, muse, the muse of Leonard Cohen's mm. song Marianne, and it was lovely. I mean, I've always liked Leonard Cohen. Mm. And, there's um, no accounting for taste. There's no accounting for taste, and, and it was lovely. And, it, and what was so funny was that the um, the I do occasionally go to the cinema, and the audiences are um, probably on the younger end. Um, this was a definitely an oldies audience. Yeah. And what was really funny is that when they were getting through into the sixties, where there was free love and lots of drugs, mm. the the you could you the the older going on in the, back the older ele- the older elements in the audience <laughs> were getting the jokes before the rest of yeah. us. You could tell the Zimmer frames were sort of clanking, <laughs> and it was extraordinary because what, what you went and I I always have felt this that when you talk to people who are perhaps born in the mid thirties nineteen forty, they were the people who 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 did tune in and turn on. Um, and now they're grannies and granddads, and and you look at them and you can't imagine that that's how they were. But I can tell you that the audience at the Curzon in Soho yesterday was not Dirty Mac stuff. It was it was the silver pound, spending a bit of money, having a lot of fun, remembering their use. One of, one of the funniest jokes in uh, Big Bang Theory, which I think may actually be addictive because I, I whenever it's on, I have to watch it. It's so funny. I don't know if you know the show. I do know. I haven't watched it. Is is Shell? Do you know uh, Big Bang Theory? I do. Yeah. Is this when, whenever the uh, Raj I think it was t- taking the Michael out of Sheldon, and the, the 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 best way he could find to sort of pierce Sheldon's shell was to say your your memoir did the nasty. <laughs> He's, take that back! Take that back about my memoir. Your memoir? What's that? His nan, his grand. Oh right, doing the nasty. Doing the nasty. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, that's an image. I think we're on to media picks. It sounds like we've got there naturally. I think we are. So we have to. Oh, Tim first. Oh, first. Well, I've already had I've already, I peaked too soon with uh, PMQs, but I'll just restate for anyone who hasn't seen it. Boris Johnson's first Prime Minister's questions worth a catch. Probably you find it on iPlayer. It's just it's it's so entertaining. And if you ha- didn't get the chance to see it, seeing seeing Boris in full full flush is uh, with with the gesticulation and all is it's, uh, it's in, quite it's quite worth seeing. International. Uh, listeners, how could they uh, iPlayer? But could it be on? Uh, it, it'll, it'll be on YouTube. Someone will have put it on YouTube, I'm sure, by now. Okay. Um, so that's worth seeing. Otherwise, something something else from the BBC, not my my favourite uh, channel, it has to be said. But uh, something we were watching the other night, uh, a repeat. Um, I'm not a, a petrol head, so I'm not really into Top Gear. Never really been into Top Gear. But if I had a favourite of the Top Gear crew it would be James May who I think is excellent an excellent presenter and a bit of a renaissance man and there was a repeat of something I hadn't seen so it, for me it was new but it was one of his toy stories uh it's called Flight Club <laughs> and basically he attempts during the course of an hour to 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 make a effectively a, a, a mock-up a sort of balsa wood glider that can then be effectively thrown and it's the idea is that it can cross the channel so oh. it can be it can be dropped from such a height so they involve at some point they're thinking of t- getting a hot air balloon that can get sufficiently high so that then this this unpowered glider can then make it across the channel in the end it, it's not across the channel i think they they, they tried uh, across the the welsh channel instead but it's a, a replica of something called the slingsby swallow um but it's just it's just classic classically british classically quixotically british and just a wonder it's just an, an amusing and engaging wonder to behold so 
James May, if there's a spectrum, then uh, uh, which Boris is at one end, James May is also at that end. But he's just a, if you haven't seen it, it's just delicious entertainment. He did a moon landing special as well, um, 10 years ago, which I thought was really excellent. Very, very interesting. Did you? Well, I saw, I saw one where they, 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 they tried to send um, an action man into space. I don't know if that's the same one. <laughs> I mean, basically, this guy has spent the last God knows how many years doing increasingly elaborate jokes and, you know, piss-takey things to, with, with toys. But it, it's just wonderful to watch. It's, it's so uplifting. It, it was the 40th anniversary of the moon landing. Obviously, it's the 50th now. Yeah. And of course, there's going to be lots of documentaries out there. But it was the 40th. And it, I thought it was great. It was absolutely Fantastic, really, really good. Someone told me, watch that. It's, it's, I, I, to be fair. And is that one of the Toy Stories? No, no, no. It was just a special. Oh, is it, is it a moon yeah. landing thing? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it was a moon landing thing, which, um, which I thought was great. But I think, I think the, the appeal for me of, of, of James Mays, firstly, I think he's an excellent host, an excellent presenter, very engaging. Uh, but also, he, he knows his engineering shit. Yeah. So, and it's just nice to have people who are grounded in something from the real world um, because yeah. there aren't that many necessarily on. I mean, celebrity these days is. Is a kind of much shrunken and, and shriveled, you know, quality. I don't think but, um, Gerald Clarkson knows anything about him. I know it, it, it amazed me if he did. Yeah. Whereas I think James May is, is like I say, is kind of a Renaissance guy. Yeah. And I mean, linking into the Apollo Eleven landing of fifty years ago now, um, uh, I suppose what I think, you know, from the media, what I thought has been extraordinary is that I actually did watch it, um, with very vague memories when I was very young, um, and. It sounded like everything was under control right. at the time. I have a very clear memory that we thought it was all under control. So they never let on that there was the, all the issues going All on. the issues were going on in code. So when you now have... Oh, of course, because you, you only heard one side of the broadcast, didn't yeah. you? You didn't. There was a lot of uh, NASA sort of back chatter going on that we were never... Ne never heard. Something down because it's you've got five seconds to go. <laughs> None of that. We, yeah. So we never saw any of that. The only, the only thing we picked up on the landing was was when the, the guy at Mission Control said, you know, when, when he said the Eagles landed, but the Mission Control guy said, you know, something like, you know, like, like we can breathe again. There's a whole yeah. lot of guys about to turn blue. Yeah. And that was the only hint yeah. that there was any any tension in that. So I think that the the, the rerunning of history with the react with truth, yeah. the, the bit that was exercised out of it, was it was great. The other one was the fact that that the the switch that they had to flick yes. to I make to, to take off yes. broke off. Did you know that? <laughs> no. So uh, it was, I didn't want to ruin it, but I think I might have recommended Eight Days to the Moon back, which was right. on BBC. Which was I, did you watch that? Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's mm -hmm. the one. It's so literally the switch that started the engines for them to get off the moon, mm. just broke off. And they didn't know what to do. So NASA engineers spent the, the night kind of working out how they could reroute yeah. whatever was there and yeah. get the computer to do something else. It just wouldn't start with a switch. And in the end, they just stuck a pen in like it. Buzz Aldrin stuck a pen in the hole. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what did it. It, it, it does also remind me, there's a lovely film called The Dish. I don't know if you've seen The Dish with Sam Neill, oh, uh, and it's about the Australian Aussie, yeah. telescope that they used. I think they had three telescopes around the world. One was in the US, they might have had one, I think they had one in maybe in Spain, and they had one in Australia so they could provide continuous coverage for when you know, the, the, the moon weren't so in proper alignment. And the dish is just really, really lovely, sort of family-friendly film. And, and it's, it's, it's this tiny little town in, in Australia in, in 1969, which is probably equates to about 1949, 
you know, in, in maybe in, in Britain. That was a rather disparaging, rather disparaging comment. This has lost me, lost me my remaining Australian friends. And um, so they, they have, I think they have like the, the US ambassador pays them a visit or something. And so they get the, the, t- the, the town, like the town band, and they're about to stop playing the American national anthem. They end up playing uh, the the, uh, the theme tune to a Hawaii Five-O, which they think is the American national anthem. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a, a very funny film. That's brilliant. That is brilliant. Well, mine for this week uh, is the Chernobyl podcast, which is um, obviously based on the the series. The the writer Craig Mazin gets interviewed about his choices and some. Have you seen the uh, the series? I haven't, no. Because Paul 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 mentioned it, and I sort of snuck ahead and basically went on to I forget which film site it was, and what and binge watched it all in a day. It's terrific. Now TV and it's absolutely terrific. Really is. Is it not on Sky though? It should be on Sky. Possibly, but I I haven't seen it. But I mean, the 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 moment you mentioned it, I said nipped onto Now TV, set up a membership just to watch that and cancelled it. So I got it for free. (laughs) Uh, But it's utterly gripping entertainment. Yeah, I bought it on Amazon Prime, which Mm. is uh, it's the most amazing thing you'll ever watch. Possibly. Yeah. And what it does is it starts this this uh, snowball effect of once you've watched it. Well, it did for me anyway. You, you want to take in more and more information. Mm. And I watched another documentary on Discovery, which uh, was interesting because, you know, it's like you, when you're interested in something, it's great to get lots of different sources because you pick mm. up lots of different things from each you can't You can't absorb enough about it. Yes, exactly. And so all the little details, uh, some extra details are on this Discovery um, documentary, which I'll put a link to. But the Chernobyl podcast, I really loved. Is it a is it a one off or is it a series? It's, it was what it was as it was being released. They were discussing each episode after the episode. Oh, so a bit like a voiceover on a, yeah. a DVD. So this week, this happened, and yeah. you know, tell us about your choices, tell us about the motivation, why did you do this, and etc. So it's it's just really nice little insight into uh, the the choices that, that they made um, for the series. So. I definitely recommend watching the series first. When we talked last time, I hadn't seen the last episode. So I would also say, when I first started watching Chernobyl, I had a temptation to look up what happened, you know, go on the internet, why did it blow up and etc. Funnily enough, it was quite difficult to get that answer. And I'm really pleased that I didn't find out because mm. by the last episode, everything ties together. And to give you an idea of how amazing it is, um, it's got 9.9 on IMDb, which is unheard of. At that episode has got mm-hmm. 9.9, which could possibly be the highest ever. And it's not with just 10 reviews, it's with thousands of re- reviews. So I think the way they tied it all back together was absolute genius and, and sort of went through the process. Um, but I, I can't, I'd love to speak more about it. But you don't, don't want to give it away. I don't want to ruin it for people. Uh, I think they've got to watch it themselves. But there's there's so much to discuss about it once you've seen it um, for many, many reasons. It's, it has, has a, a lot of repercussions for, for mm. decision-making, for arrogance. Politics. For politics. Groupthink. Yes. Managerialism. Exactly. So, so very interesting stuff. But so, yeah, that's my thing for this week. So... Just leaves me to say, David Miller and Tim Price, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on board. Just before we go, 
if our listeners, which I'm sure they will, want to contact you, what is the best way of doing that? Happy to be contacted, LinkedIn. Uh, I'm not on Facebook. <laughs> One of the, the few billion. Not adding are, 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 are any of us on Facebook? I'm not. I, I am on Facebook, but uh, I don't use it that or, much. Or um, my contact details are on the Court Achievement website. So absolutely delighted. And one of the things I didn't say about the diary is that it has a readership of 15,000. But the great pleasure of sending out my opinions once a week is that people come back and tell me what they think about them. Really? And I think that's that's a an absolutely it's gold dust for investment. So any comments, thoughts about what I've said today or, or what Tim and I have disagreed about, delighted to hear. Do you do do you do Twitter, David? Uh you're trying to encourage me to do it. I'm a bit of a Luddite. I I I stick to what I do and I find I get enough I, I have enough trouble keeping up with two hundred and fifty. If I cut if I if I can only use one thing to try and chiver you along, uh, it's something I came across over the weekend. And it's, um, yeah, I, feel, I don't know which football match it is, but the crowd start, the, the crowd recognise that one of the marshals looks a bit like Boris Johnson because he's got a big mop of, mop of white hair. <laughs> and they, they give him some gentle ribbing, but it's very, very funny. There's a little clip of that on Twitter. So oh, all so, human life is there. So we'll share that link. I'll, I'll, I'll get a link to it. But yeah, I, 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 I would keep an open mind about Twitter because from my experience, the, clearly the signal to noise ratio could be improved. Uh, not least by myself, but notwithstanding that, there's th- th- there's gold dust in them there hills. Well, it's a bit like YouTube, isn't it? You, you could look at cats on skateboards, or you can actually watch documentaries and or learn how to. Do but the, the reason I, I try and get it evangelical about Twitter is that it, for me at least, it started to facilitate some real world relationships, contacts, networks that I wouldn't be having if it were not for the joy of Twitter. So it it, it genuinely has a. Uh, a use value beyond simply the ability to to, to whinge about Brexit. I so I totally agree. I think, but I think that the the key point, or what you, the key point of what you just said, is the network. Mm-hmm. So it is a great network. I can, I accept that. It's just by chance I created my own network. So it's redundant um, for you. Not not redundant. So that'd be arrogant. But I mean, it is. Perhaps I have a, a network. A network that actually brings in opinions from all around the world, which I find fascinating. Brilliant. Um, and because I sit at the middle of it, it is, as you say, mine. So I can do what I like with it. And do, do you get investment ideas from it, like contrary opinion theory or? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, it's I send out a link and it's been open in 25 countries so far this year. So we can try to track that. Um, and so, I, I, you know, if I say something about shipping and Australia, uh, I get feedback saying, you know, I agree, I disagree, or have you thought about? Brilliant. Um, Brilliant. So it's, ne- it's never um, anything but 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 um, useful because it's not definitely not inside information. It's, it's just people who live elsewhere are specialists in different things yes. than what I do or what I would describe as the city consensus saying, have you thought about this? Have you had a look at this? And I think that's fascinating. But it's a conversation that the web effectively is facilitating that wouldn't be possible in a pre-internet era. So it, it, it's, I think it's a reflection, along with Twitter and you know, these mm-hmm. other sites, mm-hmm. it's one of these, these media that, 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 that are dependent on you know, the World Wide Web for, to, to exist. Can you imagine? I mean, for me, it would cost half a million pounds a year in postage stamps yeah. before I bought the envelopes and had the, the diary printed. Yeah. And then it would, it would have been purely a one-way yeah. thing. I'd have sent out a note that and that would have been it. That reminds me of something we used to do at the bank. 
So this is early 90s. Yeah. We would send the our Asian clients a copy of what was going on in the press on Sundays. So we'd get the Sunday papers. Was that fax? Did you fax we that would to them? Fax it. We would mm -hmm. fax it out to a company who would then fax it out to all these other companies, to all these, obviously, the our clients. It was just, just amazing, really. It was just amazing that we did that. You think about how technology and how news flowing, it, it, yeah. you know, it's, we take for granted, really, that we get everything around the world in moments. But that's how it used to happen. You know, not so long ago. I think the point is that it's superior information doesn't really exist anymore. The Bank of England doesn't know more than the rest of us know, really. Yeah. But well, what, some of us never felt that it did, but well, that's a separate uh, argument. But what I think it, it does mean that is that, it, that the interpretation of that huge amount of information is, is, is become much more important. Yes, yes. Colour on the, on the stories is much more important than the story itself. Which is different to what it was 20 years ago. Yes. You used to be getting the story was important. Yes, exactly. And everybody would react just to that story immediately or, or knee-jerk to it. But now it's like saying, well, what, it, you used to need a big funnel and now you need a big filter. Yes. Yes, very good. Very good, yes. True. So, once again, David Miller, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. And we'll obviously put links to everything as we always do. Big thank you for everyone for listening and all our fans on Twitter. And we have now put ourselves on anchor.fm forward slash state of the markets, which means that if you go to that website and listen to an episode, you can leave us a voice message. So you can either communicate via Twitter or via leaving a message for us on the show. So or fax or snail mail, <laughs> smoke signals, to communication. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you everyone. Have a fantastic week. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.